0: On uh, the multifamily financing, there's really two two main categories that most of the loans fit into. One would be traditional bank financing. Think of like a, a regional bank or community bank where, you, you know, say they take in deposits and you know loan money out. So that, that's one, one traditional source. Then the other source we'll kind of call Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac. Those are like the agency financing and they operate a little different, but pretty similar overall.
1: Welcome to Investing in the U.S., an Aussie's Guide to U.S. Real Estate, a podcast for international investors and real estate entrepreneurs looking to break into the U.S. market. G'day, g'day, guys, and welcome to another cracking edition of Investing in the U.S., in Aussie's Guide to U.S. Real Estate, the number one podcast geared towards helping international investors break into the U.S. market and start buying cash-flowing deals. From Los Angeles, I'm Reid Goossens. Good as always to have you with us on the show. Now, you know this show is all about educating my loyal listeners about the benefits of investing in U.S. cash-flowing real estate, in particular, commercial U.S. real estate. If you want to join the community of my loyal listeners, then jump on iTunes, Uh, subscribe to my show. We are on all the platforms, SoundCloud, Stitcher, iTunes. And if you subscribe to my show and you leave a comment, in return, I'm going to give you my free ebook, hot off the press. It is called The Art and Science of Raising Capital Like a Pro, The 4P Rule. Now, these four P's are the fundamentals in which to start raising capital, and they are professionalism, pitch, practice, and patience. So if you want a copy, a free copy of this new ebook, Hot Off The Press is gonna help you start raising capital like a pro, then jump on iTunes, leave the show a five-star review, then email me at info at rsnpropertygroup.com with your iTunes name, I will check it out, and in return, I'll flick you the new ebook. Very, very excited to have this new ebook. It'll help me get more visibility on iTunes. And it shows that, you know, iTunes, I'm providing you guys an awesome platform so you can all learn. remember if you have any comments about the show then you can you can tweet at me at at reed Goossens, which is r-e-e-d-g-o-o-s-s-e-n-s all right guys enough out of me let's get cracking and into today's show Today on the show, I have the pleasure of speaking with Michael Becker. Michael is the Senior Director at Old Capital Lending based in North Texas, and he has been actively involved in financing commercial real estate and has extensive experience in all aspects of the transaction process, including underwriting, marketing, financial analysis, due diligence, and preparation of marketing mater- materials. He has closed on many different asset classes throughout his career, from multifamily apartment communities, to office buildings, industrial areas, medical office buildings, raw land, hospitality, and shopping centers throughout the Southwest region of the United States. Before joining Old Capital, Michael was the top loan producer for three consecutive years in his division at Wells Fargo and has extensive prior experience in the community banking space. He's a lifelong resident of North Texas, where he attended the University of North Texas, where and he also lives there with his wife and two children. G'day, Michael. Welcome to the show. How are you doing today, mate? Doing well, thanks for having me on, Reid. My pleasure, mate. Uh, before we dive into the nuts and bolts of today's show, I've given a little bit of an overview of your background. Do you want to explain a little bit more how you got involved in the real estate investing side of it? Not just necessarily uh, focused on commercial multifamily uh, financing, but also how you become an investor.
0: Yeah, so like like you mentioned, uh, I'm a longtime banker. I worked at some community banks, and most recently at Wells Fargo. Before I left and went out on my own and joined up with Old Capital. And uh, when I was out being a banker making loans, I, I kind of realized I was on the wrong side of every transaction. And I knew, uh, I knew as much or more about it than, than virtually everyone I was given a loan to. And uh, so I went out and did something about it. And you know, over the last uh, three, three and a half years, we went out and done uh, over 20, 20 properties, about 4,200 units, uh, all here in the North Texas area.
1: Right, right. What markets in the North Texas are you focusing on? Just
0: the Dallas-Fort Worth uh, metro area, so uh, the the entire geographical metro area.
1: Cool, cool. So, so Michael, today's show is all about understanding the fundamentals of multifamily financing and how banks look at multifamily deals before they say yes to financing. I think a lot of people, particularly first-time investors, they want to get involved in multifamily space, but they need to understand the underwriting um, process. But before we dive into that underwriting process of how the banks look at it, do you want to just give us a, you know, a high-level v- uh, review? You know, I talk a lot about on this show the benefits of multifamily, but if all those new listeners just joining us, what benefits do you see in the multifamily space and why do you like investing in that space? Um,
0: many. So what I, what I like about uh, housing in general, whether it be single family or multifamily, it's a universal need. So it seems to me to be pretty safe and, and secure. And it's going to always be some level of permanent demand there. That's going to be really hard to kind of go away with technology. So I think it's an intrinsic fundamental thing. Um, specifically to multifamily versus, say, single-family. Just uh, simply the economies of scale and the ability to go and do bigger deals and put more capital at risk. It's really hard to scale these single-family homes. You got to get, you know, hundreds and hundreds of them, and they're all f- it's fragmented in different locations. Where if you buy an apartment complex, you buy a hundred-unit apartment complex and have all your your uh, your units in one location, and then the uh, revenue produces affords you to hire professional third-party management if you so choose. To help you do um, all the, the make readys, operate the property and do your books for you as well. Uh, as well as it will afford you enough revenue to hire, you know, on site maintenance and on site management. So whenever there is an issue, they go walk into the office and have the manager there to, to address it or the maintenance got to go fix it and then have, you know, someone located on property where if they want to come. Um, and lease a unit, you don't have to schedule a time for them to come. You know, from you to come from your office offsite to the property to show it to them. So, it really allows you um, quite a bit of uh, efficiency and uh, economies of scale, and really allows you to scale it quite bit uh, quite greatly. Uh, on the financing side, uh, the way the U.S. government views uh, multifamily is, you know, housing is a core issue for the government, so they have very attractive and very favorable financing terms specifically for multifamily uh, through the, their Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac uh, agency programs that there's not necessarily available for the office and retail and industrial type buildings. So not only do you get, you know, a great durable income source by having housing, which is something that's universal need. But you also get more attractive financing uh, available for multifamily relative to the other commercial uh, property types. On top of that, uh, the way the IRS views it, you can depreciate. Uh, apartments over 27 and a half years where other commercial buildings are over 39 so you got you also get increased you know tax benefits on top of it versus the other commercial asset classes so those are just some of the the main reasons why i like it
1: yeah that's that's a really great uh sort of summary overall summary of multifamily in general and you know I know when I first moved to the United States the ability of multifamily, and it, see, multifamily doesn't exist in Australia, and, and I was just blown away that I could go and buy 250 units. <laughs> I would not have that right. opportunity to go and do that in Australia just because of different structuring and financing, and I'm not going to get into that because today we're focusing on US financing for multifamily real estate. So with that being said, do you want to dive into a little bit of, if based on your experience back in the day, if someone was to come to you and say, hey, I've got a 100-unit apartment building, what does the bank like to look at? From their underwriting point of view, you've done your underwriting. You think, yeah, this is great. I'm picking up at a 7.5% cap rate. I've got great cash on cash returns. What does the bank look at before before anything?
0: Well, you know, I think it's important to kind of on the on the multifamily financing. There's really two two main categories that most of the uh, the loans fit into. One would be traditional bank financing. Think of like a, a regional bank or community bank where you you know say they take in deposits and you know loan money out. So that that's one. One traditional source, then the other source we'll kind of call Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac. Those are like the agency financing, and they operate a little different, but pretty similar overall. Um, there's also life companies and uh, what's called CMBS loan or commercial mortgage backed securities, but that's such a small part of the market that it's not really what um, finances most of these apartment complexes. So let's start with like the bank side. So think, think of it like I said, it's like they take in grandma's money. So grandma comes, opens up a savings account, and deposits with them, and then they'll take that money and go loan it out. They'll hold that loan on their balance sheet. It's not like sold off on Wall Street to somebody else. And so what they look for um, typically is they, they're, they're typically geographically constrained normally they want to be have a presence in the market that they loan on. A lot of those uh, they'll do both stabilized and non-stabilized properties at a community at a community bank, let's call it. They typically require personal guarantees, meaning that they um, not only when you buy the property, you typically put it like an LLC or a corporation uh, they'll be the bar of the loan, but they want someone standing behind it to sign a guarantee in case something happens, they'll step up and, and make the bank whole. The other things that they look for is they want to make sure that, you know, they, they typically only go out, you know, five, maybe seven years on their term, and they'll have typically maximum uh, amortizations of, say, 25-year uh, maximum amortization with, you know, the balance due at the at the end of the term, say, a balloon, balloon payment at the end of, say, five years. Those those typically what you want, at uh, typically what you can see at a traditional bank, um, community bank. Going over to Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, uh, these are like the agency loans. So what they look at them, they look at these as like permanent loans. So they're going to go make, they, they make loans as short as a five-year term, but most of the loans are 10 or 12-year terms with 30-year amateurs. Um, these loans are typically non-recourse. So, what that means is they have recourse to the borrower to the LOC, the corporation. But they don't have any uh, person standing behind it, signing a personal guarantee. What they have is someone that will come and assign what is called as a key principal or KP is what we call it. And what that means is uh, it's a non recourse loan as long as someone doesn't commit uh, fraud or misrepresent something. And that point they can spring in a guarantee to the, the key principal. But short of that, it's, it's a non recourse loan. Um, some other key differences typically on the community bank loans, they don't require escrows. On Fannie Mae, they'll make you escrow monthly for taxes, insurance, and what's called replacement reserves. So I want to make sure you put a little bit of money aside, like in a forced savings account, in case there's any sort of physical issue with the asset. They can, uh, you know, you have some money set aside with the lender to go address, say like a boiler going out or fix a roof leak or something along those lines.
1: Interesting. Interesting. You, you briefly mentioned at the beginning there about stabilized and non-stabilized assets. Do you want to quickly touch on that and which loan, um, product would be more suitable for one or the other?
0: Sure. So sta- stabilized property just simply means that the property is generally full, is to to the market occupancy and, and is uh, producing monthly cash flow. There's no physical distress or management distress on the property. So non-stabilized would be like a, a foreclosure or uh current owner just didn't have enough money and they have a bunch of deferred maintenance that's kind of accumulated and they're having just, you know, some physical issues with the property. So Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, the agency loans, they only loan on stabilized properties. So their minimum requirements that they need are 90% occupancy for the last 90 days. Um, that's kind of their minimum Requirements. So they only look for stabilized properties. They will typically allow you to roll some cap CapEx or uh, rehab dollars into the loan. So the, the Fannie Mae product caps out at $5,000 a unit um, in, in CapEx, where the community banks loans, uh, if you have a really distressed property, a lot of them will come in and and loan you um, you know, a lot more per door in in renovation dollars. So you can take that into account when you're doing um, your, your loan to value, your loan to cost. Uh, one thing I didn't mention, Reed, was uh, typically the community bank loans don't go much over say 75%. So usually 70 to 75% loan to value or loan to cost, uh, the lesser of the two or Fannie Mae will go all the way up to 80% uh, when they're doing their loans. So, so those are some of, some of the key differences, but the Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac product is, is, is designed to have stabilized properties where the community bank loans, you can do either stabilize or value add um, distressed
1: property. Got it. Got it. So when you in with the with the value out, you may have a higher vacancy. You know, you you mentioned there ninety percent uh, Fannie may wants to see before they will come in and loan against the product or the asset. Um, on, on community banks, it's a it's a lot, you know, a lot more, a lot more distressed, so to speak. Correct.
0: Yeah, the, 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 the Fannie Mae, think of it like the Fannie Mae has a lot of guidelines and, and rules where the community banks uh, can be a little bit more entrepreneurial. And they, as long as it makes some business sense, I mean, the, the individual banks have, certainly have their own credit policies. But they can uh, they be a little bit more entrepreneurial. And if you come in and make a business case that, hey, this is a, a property that's underperforming and all I got to do is spend you know X amount per unit to fix up the exterior and upgrade the interior units, so I can raise it. I can raise my rent and raise my revenue and occupancy up to here. It, it, it makes sense to them. You can come in and tell them a story. Now, they might not give you the full, say, 75% leverage. If it's a little bit more distressed, they might take that down to, say, 70 or 65% or make you pledge some sort of additional collateral until the property is stabilized. But they certainly, it's, it's not just a hard no like it would be over uh, if you took the product, took the property over to a, a Fannie Mae product.
1: Interesting. So that sort of segues into the borrower and what? how do they look at the deal and the borrower, particularly in commercial, because obviously in residential, they uh, banks like to lend on you know what's your income? How are you going to support this debt? But when you bring a multifamily deal or in any commercial deal, that is, the banks look at it more like a business, correct? And so, do you want to talk to us about how they look at it a business? What are they looking for for cap rates? What are they looking for um, for debt service ratio, particularly on a on a on a stabilized and non stabilized asset?
0: Yeah, that that's a that's a good point. So the uh, the traditional bank loans, um, they, they they typically they they will loan to someone with no previous multifamily ownership experience. where on the Fannie Mae. They definitely um, require that someone who's the key principal with that signs on the, the loan would have some some previous multifamily ownership experience. So that's a very key distinction. Fannie Mae doesn't wanna make loans to a bunch of first-timers, uh, where a traditional bank uh, will. So that's how most people start. When you get into the business, you go get a loan at a community bank, sign on the recourse, and that's kind of how you cut your teeth in the business um so, so that that's one key distinction um but you know on the, the the community bank side um you know they also have typically have recourse where on the main side they don't so they they feel like they have a, an additional way to get repayment if there potentially comes an issue on the property um to your point the way they look at these deals um on the Fannie Mae loan, uh, you need to have a 1.25 debt coverage ratio on the way they underwrite. So what that means is they want to have the net operating income of the property. So all the revenue the property uh, produces less all the operating expenses, which excludes things like debt service, which excludes debt service, but it's like all the things operate like payroll, property taxes, insurance, etc., cetera, um, equals your NOI. They want that to be 125% of your annual principal and interest payment. And that's, that's what's called like a 1.25. 2.5 debt coverage ratio. So that's the minimum that Fannie Mae has. And then most banks are, are pretty similar. They want to have a 1.2 or 1.25. It kind of depends, depends on the bank. Uh, but if it's a distressed asset, they'll do it kind of on a pro forma basis. So like I like I mentioned, that they have a guarantee. So if, it, um, if the property doesn't work out of the gate, they might ask you to pledge a little bit more collateral, or lower the loan to loan to loan to cost a little bit, a loan to value a little bit, and then they'll just underwrite it like on a pro forma basis, like what it will be once you implement your your capital plan and upgrade the units and then lease these units out at the higher rental rates.
1: Interesting. Now that's that's very very uh, key information for all those people listening out there because you you touch on very very uh, important aspect of debt service ratio um, talk to me about the credit uh, of, of the of the borrower um, as you know w- how much do they look at the property and how much do they look at you as the borrower when you f- as a first-timer coming through the door on well maybe just on a community bank for so to speak
0: yeah so like you mentioned before when you, you try to go get like a family loan on a single family house it's like 90 percent the, the borrower and your income and about 10% about the property. Basically does the property appraise or not on the commercial financing side. It's, it's almost the opposite. It's the, the vast majority of it's about the property and then the borrower, the individual same behind it. It's a much smaller part of it uh, they, they look at this, I like guess a business because it is, you know, produces has employees and produces revenue on a, on a monthly basis um, and has expenses. So, so I really want to make sure that the property is sustaining, sustainable uh, on its own. And that, you know, that's why they have these, the debt coverage ratios uh, in place. Now, what they do want um, is they, they don't want you to put you like your last dollar into the deal uh, read. So they typically <laughs> want the, the guarantor or on the family side to, to have some, some money, you know, left. Uh, after they close a the loan, in case there's an issue, they have the ability to support the deal. So kind of on the, on the Fannie Mae side, the, the KP or the KPs collectively, the key principles collectively, the minimum requirement that you have is uh, a net worth to be equal to or greater than the loan amount. And, and they want to have your post-closing liquidity to be uh, equal to or greater than 10% of the loan amount. On the, the, the traditional banking, regional community banking side, uh, it varies depending on where you go, but the general rule of thumb that I like to, to give out is you want your net worth to be equal to or greater than the loan amount as well and then have post-closing liquidity in about 20 or 25% of the loan amount after you close. So that's kind of the rule of thumb that that works pretty well. Some banks will be a little bit more aggressive, some banks will be a little bit more conservative, but if you kind of follow those guidelines, that usually works out pretty 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 good.
1: Right. And then I can assume I could bring a KP into a community bank as well to uh, to show them that there's there's net worth in the deal, correct?
0: Yeah. So so that's one of the good things about real estate. It's kind of I like to say it's like a team sport, right? So <laughs> you don't have to have everything yourself if you can assemble the team together around you. Um, you know, you can bring someone else to sign on your loan, either as a key principal for the Fannie Mae or sign a personal guarantee with a community bank loan. And it's like, a, it's an aggregate. So they take, uh, you, say you and I do a deal together, They'll look at your balance sheet and my balance sheet and kind of combine them together to, to try to meet those minimum test numbers.
1: Right, right. So talk to me a little bit about valuation. You know, a lot of guys go in there, they want to increase that NOI and they're going to go back to the bank in two years time and say, look, I've got this NOI up to X. I'm now going to value it based on a cap rate um, and it's going to be worth, you know, 30% more. Um, How... Is there a ceiling, particularly with Class C assets, in terms of what things will trade at in in your market? In your experience, you've got over four thousand units. Because I do see a lot of people showing me deals, and they're basing their IRR, the internal rate of return calculation, off this sort of uh, NOI increase and 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 cap rate that's increased so much that the value of the property is now on paper should be worth that much. But will it, whether it trades at that much is another question. And then so that uh, it goes back to: Will the bank value that? Um, at such a high rate in four or five years time once you've really really stabilized the property
0: yeah that's a, yeah, that's a tough <laughs> question so uh it's been i've been amazed um at the the, the prices of the properties uh kind of where we sit today towards the you know the the end of uh, 2016 right now versus you know kind of where they they traded at the depths in, say 2009 2010 uh, here in my local market i mean the prices have moved uh, dramatically from, from then to now, uh, a couple of things that that help support the price movement are you know one the my local economy is doing really well and then and two the, the rental rates are materially higher today than what they were five or six years ago as well as the overall occupancy's up quite a bit versus uh, what the market occupancy was at the, the low part of the recession so there's some real fundamental things that have driven the prices up a couple of that with having you know relatively historic uh, uh, low interest rates and the availability financing being much greater today versus what it was in 2009, 2010 it's really kind of driven all these prices up. So if looking at some of the properties that I own and what I'm, what, you know, what they're worth now, what I'm selling versus what we paid for them, you know, three years ago, it's just, I mean, I, I can't believe it's just blown out our, our, our original estimations. So, you know, I I don't know exactly how to answer your question. I mean, I think there's going to be a point of a uh, pushback. I mean, there's, there's gotta be my biggest uh, fear. One of the things that, we're most concerned about is really just affordability um, relative for that for the for our tenants, you know, because the rents have gone up quite a bit uh, faster than what their, their incomes have. So there's going to be a point where they just can't afford it. So they're going to have to push back at some point. Um, we haven't seen that yet, but, you know, at some point that's going to have to come. Uh, but as long as the, the rents keep rising, you know, we'll be very supportive of, of increasing value. So whenever that stops, I think that'll be, um, that'll be a point where, you know, we'll kind of get pushed back. But I, in my local market, I don't see any obvious headwinds on the horizon that's going to stop, um, you know, rents going up and prices going up in the immediate term, unless we have a major economic, you know, global or national economic Uh, Event that kind of pushes down to my market and affects us.
1: Right, right. So, for all those listening out there, just to quickly summarize, is that um, what you're saying, Michael, is that if I did go into a property and increase the NOI by 25, 30%, in theory, I should, in in five years' time, and I base it on the same cap rate as which I purchased at, or maybe even 50 bips more, basis points more, then I should have a valuation, a pretty accurate valuation of what my property is worth, correct?
0: I, I, I would think so, right? So as long as you come in and increase your net operating income by 25% and keep the cap rate the same, your value should go up 25%. So, yep. so the, the crystal ball is what's going to happen to the capitalization rates and interest rates. I mean, then right. the interest rates will affect cap rates and that's the stuff that's out of your control. Um, and that's kind of the the, the macro uh, capital markets issue. So that's uh, <laughs> it's a little harder to predict, right there.
1: Right, right. And that sort of segues into my, oh, well, two things I wanted to quickly ask because we didn't touch on what what are interest rates doing right now, uh, both for community banks and and Fannie Mae. Uh, is there a difference um, in the two?
0: Yeah, so the community banks are a little bit more kind of you know mom and pop. So they really they, they don't really have a uniform rhyme or reason the way they, they price their their loans. Um, a lot of them, a lot of them do like prime prime rate plus the spread. That's kind of how they typically fix their rates. Where if you go to uh, Fannie Mae or any sort of commercial uh, securitized loan like uh, CMBS or life, it's just typically the ten year treasury. Plus a spread, so the U.S. ten-year Treasury plus the spread. So what's happened? Uh, we're we're sitting at the end of November right now as we record this in 2016. So about three weeks ago, Donald Trump got elected, and ever since then, the the ten-year Treasury is up about 55 or 60 basis points, or you know about 0.6% from what it was the day before he got elected. So it's really driven um, the interest rates up on the loans. It's about by 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 0.6%. So it doesn't seem like a lot of money, but from where where it was in early November you can you could have borrowed money say for 10 years fixed about four percent it's now 4.6 percent so it's moved you know about 15 percent uh, higher uh, from a percentage basis but it, even though it's only 0.6 percent um, in a nominal basis
1: right right and what, your, what is your rule of thumb I got a couple of rules of thumb when I an, analyze a deal where you want to see interest rates compared to where you're picking up the cap rate of the building for um, do you have a rule of thumb at all?
0: Yeah. So what Reed's referring to is that uh, if you can buy a property on say like an 8% cap rate and borrow money on a 5% cap rate and you can borrow say 75% or leverage four to one, you have a positive arbitrage because your property is producing 8% return and on 75% of it, you only paying 5% of interest rate. So the greater that spread, the more cash flow you can make. Um, so what's my rule of thumb kind of the, the, the arbitrage difference between the two. I mean, I would love to see 200 basis points or 2% difference between my cap rate and my um, my interest rate now. But when we buy properties, uh, I typically look to have like a light value add property. So it's not so much what the property is producing today, but it's what I believe I could turn it into year two, year three, once I implement my a capital plan and my management plan to the property.
1: Right. And and just to be specific that you're talking about the cap rate of the building, not necessarily the cap rate of the of the market surrounding that building, correct?
0: That's right. Yeah, that is right. what what I'm going to uh, – to, to my, my purchase price, to my cost, what I can make the, the my net operating income and calculate like a future cap rate to my cost. Right, right. That, that's correct.
1: Right, right. So uh, moving forward into the future, Donald Trump is now in, in power or will be in power in early 2017. From an investment point of view, multifamily, and, and if interest rates continue to rise and that 200 basis points that you like to see continues to squeeze – what is your investment strategy moving forward and what are you sort of – I know no one has a crystal ball, but what are you anticipating coming 2017 and where, and where the multifamily game is because it's been so bloody hot, <laughs> particularly in Dallas-Fort wow. Worth, which is where I'm investing and you're investing. What, what, what's the sort of strategy moving forward?
0: Yeah, it's gonna. That's, that's another uh, good tough question. So I don't, uh, like you said, I don't have a crystal ball. But um, you know, I, I was thinking, you know, a couple months back, talking around with my business partner, I was, I was figuring that we probably had somewhere between. 75 and 100 basis points in interest rates before we start seeing an interest rate movement up before we start seeing cap rates really get affected. So I think we've pretty much taken out the majority of that already in the last uh, three weeks with uh, after Trump has been elected. So I think if we see much more interest rate movement upwards, my personal belief is cap rates will start creeping up. Um, Because like you mentioned, the the spreads are going to start getting compressed for the the buyer. They're just just not going to start making a lot of economic sense as as much as it used to be. So what I think is going to happen, if that happens, what I think will will happen is there's going to be some slowing up of of transactions. There just has to be because as an owner, you're going to see, well, I could have sold this property for X amount of dollars a month ago or two months ago. And now I'm, I, you know, now I, it was offering me that. So I don't want to, I don't want to take a lower price because I, I believe the property is worth with X and the marketplace doesn't think it is because the interest rates are up, and they just can't get their same yields. So I think it'll be a period of several months where you have to have some level of price discovery in the market before transactions kind of, before the market resets and transactions starts, you know, going again. So, you know, the, how, how hard does that slow up? I, I'm, I'm not quite sure. Um, you know, hopefully it's a, uh, uh, relatively short period of time, and, and things will keep going. So uh, I, I feel fortunate, and with everything that I own, and what most of the loans that we do are long-term fixed-rate debt. So having adjustable-rate debt, I mean, it's certainly been uh, the the right move for this this entire cycle. It's been the more advantageous uh, product to have because the rates have been lower, and they don't have large prepayment penalties. But if we get into an environment where rates rise uh, sharply, I'll be feeling a lot better that I got long-term fixed-rate debt, and I don't have a problem for many, many years.
1: <laughs> and what 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 have you fixed it at um, on on your portfolio? So, so it depends. It ranges
0: the deal by deal, time by time. But generally speaking, uh, with the last deal we locked was in August of uh, 2016 and we locked it at three point eight seven percent for twelve years. Wow.
1: And, right.
0: uh, and then, you know, but if you were got me and we'd a to deal in December last year, I was like 4.9%, I think. So, you know, it was like from the end of 2015 to the, you know, basically to the late summer of 2016, it was almost 100 basis points or a full percentage point lower than, than, uh, than what it was at the, you know, in, the, in that nine or 10 month period. And now they've, they've come back up, say, you know, 0.6% or 60 basis points.
1: Interesting. That's, that's, that's interesting. And in just in 12 months, that, that was such a major difference in, in financing. So have you locked anything in recently, um, since the election, uh, uh and moving forward?
0: Uh, <laughs> uh, unfortunately, I'm buying the deal right now. We're trying to rate lock So, uh, it's, it's been a little hairy. I've not fallen it. So, uh, no, no, I haven't. But, uh, you know, I think, I mean, obviously, we're gonna, we're gonna be up. Um, when we underwrite deals, we always have some level of buffer and lowering our loan amount versus what we apply for, and then raising our interest rate versus what we apply for. And I've certainly blown through my buffer. Uh, I thought it was pretty, I thought it was pretty uh, conservative and wide enough. And, you know, at this point, it, it certainly wasn't. I didn't, I didn't foresee 60 basis points in such a short period of time. So uh, un- unfortunately, um, it's going to be a little bit, a little bit tight. And our loan proceeds will be a little bit lower uh, than what we underwrote to, but I, you know, we're certainly, I think, going to be okay in the safe zone. But it's, um, you know, it's, it's, it's causing a little bit of anxiety along the way, no question.
1: Right. And then just for those listening out there, you're just meaning that less loan proceeds, which means the loan to value uh, or loan to cost ratio is lower, right? That's, that, that's no, so right. It might, it might not be eighty percent; it might be seventy percent or sixty-five percent.
0: Seventy, yeah. Instead of eighty, it'll be like seventy-eight or seventy-seven Got and a it. half percent, something like that.
1: Got it, which just means you need more equity from your investors, correct? That's right. Yep, yep, yep. So when you're what what are you looking at these days in terms of um, when you're underwriting your deals and, and how do you know to make the maximum offer? Like are you underwriting based on the NOI, the trailing twelve months, looking at a cap rate of the market and then minusing out any expenses you might have to do to it to give you a maximum offer to, to for a property when you're when you're submitting offers?
0: Uh, if you do that, you're not going to win any deals today. So that's that's not a that's not a viable uh, strategy. So um, uh, that that might have worked a few years ago, but t- today, what, what you know, generally speaking, what we look at is um, you know we kind of look at the, a trailing three months income, so last say 90 days worth of income. Over you know what we believe our expenses are going to be, we look at it that way, uh, as well as we look at it on a pro forma basis. So for you know we're buying a property, and the, the overall market, uh, the overall average rental rates on that property are say eight hundred dollars a month, and we believe the market should be nine hundred dollars a month by doing our market survey of what the peers are charging. You know we'll we'll look at it on a pro forma basis and take about two years to get to the market rents um of the 900 dollars, then we try to make sure that we can hit you know at least a minimum cash on cash by year two of uh, double digits of 10 percent uh, or greater and then you know at the end of uh you know uh the the end of say like a typical five-year hold period we want to make sure that we can you know have a total return of a hundred percent or greater uh, including cash flow and a hypothetical capital gain at the end of the five years. Um, that's, that's what we've kind of been, that's our minimum, the way we underwrite. So that's probably on an IRR perspective, about an 18 minimum IRR, somewhere in that ballpark, is kind of what we look for. Um, fortunately, we've been able to far exceed those in, in the past. Uh, but, you know, like, like we, we all know, the winds have kind of been in our sails. It's been such a strong market and everything's been going so great for so long. You know, I don't know if the future is going to be uh, as easy to hit all these these super home runs as, as the last several years have been.
1: Right. Interesting. Um, mate, any advice you have for new time multifamily investors getting into the space, particularly now where we are in the global economic cycle uh, and, and where multifamily is right now? Or, and are you looking at any other asset classes?
0: Uh, no, I, I don't look at other asset classes because uh, I'm not that smart read. So I just kind of do one <laughs> thing and just do it over and over and over again. So uh, I try not to uh, try not to deviate from it. Um, and then you know I give you a laundry list of reasons why uh, I don't like the other asset classes um, like office and industrial. Our, our office, our office and retail, a lot more capital intensive. There's things called leasing commissions and tenant improvement allowances that every time you lease a unit, at uh, least a space, you, you have to pay the tenant to move in. So that's really capital intensive, um, where the apartments, if you, as long as you got a good product, all you do is hose it down, put a new coat of paint on it and you can move someone in. So it's a lot easier, uh, to, to do the apartment. So I'm going to stick with the apartments. Um, but yeah, some of, some, some advice, uh, certainly, um, you know, I'm a believer in long term fixed rate uh, financing. That is kind of what we've done. Uh, As I mentioned previously, I've been wrong uh, repeatedly about that. But I think uh, right now I feel really good about everything we have, sort of the one that I'm trying to rate lock right now. Everything else is set for you know, for for many many years. So I think if there's some level of disruption, having a long-term fixed-rate loan will allow me to kind of ride the cycle down and you know ride it back up. And that's what I saw through this last cycle as a banker. Uh, the people that really got in trouble, you know, kind of fell into one of three categories. Um, you know, either you bought a property in the hood and kind of a really bad uh, high crime area that that's really hard. Those those properties get hit really bad in, in recessions. Uh, two, you come in undercapitalized meaning that you don't have, um, you don't do a good physical inspection. You don't have the money set aside up front to take care of all the deferred maintenance and then do your, uh, implement your, like your, your upgrade plan, either to the interior of the units or the amenities on the outside. Um, and so what happens when you hit a little soft patch, uh, you, you say you don't, and you don't have the money set aside and you have like an air, air conditioning unit go out in an occupied unit and you don't have the money to spend $1,000 to get a new AC condenser. So you go to a vacant unit and take their condenser and move it to your occupied unit and now you got a unit without an AC condenser you can't lease it and kind of snowballs. Right, so that is one thing We're coming in becoming well-capitalized will help mitigate um, that risk quite a bit. And then finally having you know poor management. So if you have um, mom-and-pop management or you don't have the right, right management company in place to help you uh, manage through the cycle, those, those are the reasons why I've seen people get in trouble in the last cycle. Uh, on top of the, the final one would be really uh, just having a maturity at a bad time. So if you had a, a loan mature in 2009 and the capital markets are frozen, you're kind of you're SOL, you're in, you're in trouble. Um, where the guys that had long-term fixed rate debt, that had you know, many years left on it, um, they were able to ride it out, and come out the backside. Um, maybe they didn't cash flow as well, or maybe they didn't make a bunch of money in the lean times, but at least they, they kept their property and were able to find another day.
1: Interesting. Interesting. I, I always like to ask my guests on the show, the biggest mistake they've made. Like we can talk about successes till the cows come home. You know, everyone loves a success story, but the real lessons learned are, are the mistakes, correct? So what are the, what are, what's the biggest mistake you've made? And you might've already touched on it. Um, but, but what has been the biggest mistake and maybe some of the details of, of that mistake and what you learned? Yeah, you know,
0: I I feel pretty fortunate. I don't think I've made any major, major mistakes along the way. I I had the benefit of uh, being a banker for a long time before I ever, ever borrowed money of any of any note. So I was able to observe other people's mistakes and uh, (laughs) learn from them on their nickel versus versus my own. You know, the last little uh, those little four points that I mentioned are are certainly reasons why I, I observed a lot of people lose properties uh, in the last downturn of the cycle. So th- those are the most major common mistakes I've seen people make. I did have a, uh, you know, some a management company that that didn't do a good job for me. I let them hang on a little too long just because I had a good personal relationship with them. That was probably the biggest mistake I made. Um, you know, friendship aside, I mean, the business is business and you need to make sure that you know, the people that you hire, that they're competent and good and they're, they're, they're paying attention to what they need to pay attention to and running your properties correctly. So uh, I've never been defrauded. I never lost a property. I never really had anything like that happen to me, uh, fortunately. But, but you know, that would be probably the biggest mistake that I've made is just, you know, making sure that you hold everyone accountable along the way. Because I know when I go out and raise money, my investors hold me accountable. So everyone in the entire uh, process needs to be held accountable as well. And everyone needs to do their job.
1: Well, Michael, I could literally keep talking to you for the next couple of hours because got, there's more and more questions, but I know your time is very, very precious. If people wanted to reach out to you, where can they reach you to, to continue the conversation?
0: Sure, yeah. Well, uh, I'll just give out my email address. It's uh, M B-E-C-K-E-R, at oldcapitallending.com. That's Becker at uh, you know, One of the other ways uh, you can learn about us is we actually have our own podcast read as well. Nice. So uh, Old Capital uh, Real Estate. Investing Podcast, the Old Capital Real Estate Investing Podcast, and we're on Stitcher and iTunes and all the major uh, the major podcast aggregators, or it's also at oldcapitalpodcast.com. Those are the, the best ways to learn a little bit more about us. And if uh, if you're an apartment nerd and you like listening to a uh, podcast about apartments and apartment financing, this is uh, the one for you. I can, I can promise <laughs> you that.
1: I love. It. That's a good name for a podcast, actually. Apartment nerd. <laughs> <laughs> it's
0: uh, you, you have to really be into uh, apartments to uh, and real estate investing to listen to our podcast. So we just interview a lot of our clients and then, uh, brokers and other service providers in the uh, the North Texas area that that kind of support the uh, the multifamily space. So that's uh, I do that with my my partner Paul Peoples, and we try to have one out weekly. So uh, if anybody hears me here and want, wants to learn a little bit more about about multifamily and have in uh, Discussions about different aspects of it—that that's good, uh, good resource for you.
1: Awesome, and I know you did uh, flick me on some some white paper. Uh, can people get their hands on that that same white paper? Yeah. about multifamily financing. Yeah, if you guys, we,
0: we uh, I helped uh, with Paul, we helped uh, draw, uh, draw up a, a 10 or 11 page uh, white paper, kind of give you the, the basics, uh, kind of the 101 and multifamily financing. If you guys want that, I think info at oldcapitallending.com. If you just email info at oldcapitallending.com, we'll, we'll send, send out the, uh, the 11 page white paper and you guys can uh, certainly read it and, and go from there.
1: Awesome, awesome. And uh, for all those listeners out there, definitely email it. It's a very, very awesome 11 pages, uh, jam-packed full of incredible advice. Uh, and just, you know, r- very, very explained in, in layman's terms for everyone out there who may be a bit confused or lost throughout this uh, this interview if we went too deep into some some topics. So definitely hit up uh, Michael and his team at Old Capital. Uh, Michael, I want to thank you for dropping in today. and just want to quickly summarize on some of the stuff we've talked about. We went through non-recourse and recourse debt, the difference between community banks and uh, more government institutions institutional banks. Uh, we talked about how the, the debt service ratio and people or banks like to look at debt service ratio uh, and loan to cost and how that can be affected given where we are and in if interest rates rise and cap rates start to compress. Um, did I leave anything out? No,
0: I think, uh, you know, I think that, that's it. I think the white paper has quite a bit of information. And, uh, you know, if anyone has any questions, I'm certainly, whether I can help or I, or I can't help, I don't mind having a quick conversation with somebody. You certainly can reach out to me. And um, I'm always happy to try, try to help answer some questions along the way.
1: Awesome. Actually, one last question before you jump off the line. Uh, this show is all about helping international investors break into the U.S. market. Are you working with any international guys right now?
0: Uh, my, my partner, Paul, has done done some of that. Uh, lending, I haven't done a ton of it, um, but I know we've done some loans with people from Singapore and some and Canada and some other countries as well. I don't know if we've done any Aussies yet, but uh, <laughs> but uh, I, th- I know we've done people from Canada and Singapore for for sure. It comes off the top of my mind. It is a little bit more difficult. Uh, no 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 question about it. There there's a little a uh, little bit more uh, challenges we have to overcome, but it's, people do it all the time, uh, every day, all day, so uh, it's certainly attainable.
1: Exactly. Well, Michael, thank you so much for dropping by. Have a great rest of your week and we'll catch up soon. All right. Thanks, Rick. Well, there you have it. Another cracking episode filled of so much important information about multifamily financing here in the United States. Guys, I so much recommend jumping on uh, info at oldcapital.com. Hit, hit Michael up. That that, that uh, white paper or ebook, as I like to call it, is very, very informative. It's got full of so much information for anyone out there who was a little bit uh, confused with some of the questions I was asking today and we, maybe some of the, the acronyms we were using were a little bit too quickly. Uh, we'll use, sorry, not too quickly, that we use. Uh, you may not understand them. Get his uh, get his ebook, and it is just it, it explains it in so so layman's terms, and you'll be so much better prepared to approach a bank. Now, remember, if you do like this show, jump on iTunes and hit the, uh, give the show a five star review, and you can comment on the show at iTunes, and you can also comment at me at Twitter at Reed goosens So R E E D G O O S S. Leave your comments, reviews, whatever you think about the show. I always love love hearing feedback and how I can. improve because that's what i'm all about is trying to improve this show for my audience and all you guys out there who want to invest here in the united states uh and in return as you as you know that i will hit i'll show you my ebook a brand spanking new new ebook straight off the press the art and science of raising capital like a pro the 4p rule which is professionalism pitch practice and patience now if you want to if you want that ebook then you can hit me up at info at rsnpropertygroup.com Make sure you check out all the show notes for a summary of today's conversation with Michael. It will be up on my website at rsmpropertygroup.com. Just remember to click on the podcast tab. Thanks for taking some time out of your day to tune in to continue to grow your real estate investing knowledge because that's what we're all about here on this show, to continue to grow your financial IQ so you can get started investing in US real estate. Until next week, take care, be safe, and remember, happy investing.